Good morning, church. Happy Sabbath. All right, some of you guys are in good spirits. I hope you had a good 14th of February. Maybe it means something to you. Maybe it doesn't. But you did get fair warning. Uh, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we um, made a public service announcement. So hopefully you took heed of our uh, uh, advice and you had a good 14th. And if you didn't, you're in God's house. It's safe. There's forgiveness here among us, okay? Uh, flowers can only take you so far, but, but God's forgiveness goes beyond flowers. So I want to welcome you to this morning's worship service. And if you haven't been with us, I'm just going to dive right in. We've been in a series called This is the Way, and it's a series exploring the book of John, the gospel of John. We're going to go right to it, okay? We're in John chapter 4. What chapter? Four, that's right. So grab a Bible. Uh, there's one in the pew in front of you or in, in, on your smartphones and follow along with me because I believe that in the house of God, God's word is of utmost importance. So hopefully you've come to the house of God to hear from the word of God and we're going to be in John chapter four. Please uh, turn there with me on John chapter four. I'm going to use a pew Bible here. So in case you want to follow along, uh, this is what mine looks like. There's one in there in the pew. We are in page uh, I believe it's 1071. Yeah, 1071, chapter 4. Okay, and uh, we're, I'm going to read. This is a familiar passage of Scripture for most people, uh, but if it's new to you, fantastic. You'll get to see it with first eyes. And even if it's something that you've heard, read, or think you understood before, I want you to go with me as we journey maybe and look at something that we hadn't recognized before. So we're in John chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, and I'll read it to you. That when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was also making and baptizing uh, more disciples than John, uh, although Jesus wasn't baptizing, but his disciples were, Jesus decided that he needed to leave. So he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Everybody say Galilee. Okay. Now, if I were to ask you where Judea was versus Galilee, would you know? Not really, right? Uh, this is what I was confessing to first service. Uh, even though I grew up in church like most of you, and you heard the words, you've heard Judea before, yes? You've heard Galilee, Sea of Galilee. If you've heard these, in your mind's eye, as you hear stories from the New Testament about Jesus doing things here or doing things there, we kind of think of it as all in the same region. But actually, these two places, Judea and Galilee, are on opposite ends of Palestine. So if you have a, a you know, Google Maps or Google Earth on your phone, and you type in Jerusalem, you will see that in that corner of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, Jerusalem or Judea is in the south or at the bottom, whereas Galilee and Nazareth are at the top of this, uh, of this corner. Well, to me it's this way, so you guys will be like that. And um, what's important to note here is that Jesus is from the north. He was born in what town? Nazareth, right? Jesus is from up there. But most of the important stuff happens in Jerusalem, which is down at the bottom. And if you read the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will discover that Jesus travels. That's right. He was a traveler. How many of you guys like traveling? Come on, don't be shy. You like traveling, all right? How many of you guys like traveling by foot? Okay, no one. You know what I've discovered? Uh, Americans, especially Southern California Americans, do not travel by foot. Mm -mm. We don't walk. That's why they invented those uh, little rolling things that you can uh, just wheel your way around. What are they called? 
Hoverboards, yeah, hoverboards. Uh, you know, you could just spin your way around and go places. Uh, I've seen one now right here in Spring Valley. There's a different one. It's just one wheel. Have you seen it? It's just one, like, wheel that you straddle, and uh, it's, um, it's, it goes, like, 40 miles an hour. I saw somebody zooming around the hills of Spring Valley. That's right, the hills of Spring Valley, just zooming up and down. Why? Because we're Southern Californians. We like to drive. We don't walk. If you travel, though, if you travel beyond California in particular, but beyond the U.S., you'll find that a lot of people besides our country actually do walk, uh, do walk a lot. We were in Canada last year, and um, even though it was freezing cold outside, people were walking, <laughs> all bundled up, and they're just, they're just walking. There's trails in places. But in the Middle East, people walk because that's the only way to get around. And during Jesus' time, he would have walked. On occasion, he may have uh, you know, taken a ride or an animal, but for the most part, Jesus would have walked, and he liked to walk. If you look at the maps or at the back of your Bible, or, or if you have your own version, you'll see that Jesus made journeys travels up and down between the south and the north, between his birthplace and sort of the, the central capital of, 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 of Judean religion, of, of the Jews down in Jerusalem, up and down. But what you might not know, uh, because the Bible sort of like describes it seamlessly, is that every time Jesus made a journey from the south to the north or vice versa, there was something stuck in the middle, in the middle. So uh, you can look it up on the Pew Bible. If you like, uh, it's in the back there, uh, in the map section, or in your uh, smartphones. If you type in Jerusalem or Mediterranean Sea Agency, you'll discover that there near the bottom, um, there is, it's like a little circle shape where Judea is at the bottom and Nazareth is at the top. Judea, Galilee. You see that? Ever see that? I'm doing a little book for you guys, but you can <laughs> look it up for yourself. It's Judea at the bottom, Jerusalem at the bottom, Nazareth at the top, Judea and Galilee. And here, this large body of water is called the Mediterranean Sea, but inland, there are two smaller bodies of water connected by one river, a very important river. Anybody want to take a guess on the river's name? That's right, down to the River Jordan. That's right. At the north, you have the Sea of Galilee. Uh, you'll see it, little one here, you have the Sea of Galilee, and the River Jordan goes down into the south, which we call the Dead Sea. And between these bodies of water is basically everything that occurred in your, in your New Testament Gospels in, in these sections. And although the Mediterranean Sea was there, life, daily life centered around the Dead Sea or the Sea of Galilee and the River Jordan. But here's what's fascinating. As we're reading the story, we discover that Jesus is in Judea at the bottom in the south, and he's going to make a trip up to Galilee. But look at what the Bible says, all right? We're back in John. We're back in John, not just sort of have a visual. We're back in John. The Bible says in chapter 4 there that Jesus um, uh, was going to go to Galilee, verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. And the reason that the author describes that uh, for, for you and I, it doesn't make any sense, but to anyone in the first century who would be listening to this, they would understand why this was a, a difficult journey and one that would require some careful choices. See, between the south, where Jerusalem and Judea is, and the north, where Galilee and Nazareth is, Bethsaida and all the stuff, all the, all, the, all the cities, there's a section there called Samaria, also abutting the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And this section there, Samaria, was not occupied by Jews. 
the Jews that you and I know from the New Testament. No, there lived a group of people called the Samaritans. That's right, the Samaritans. And though the, the Jews, by the time we encounter Jesus, live both in the north and the south, they do not actually live in the middle. It's a strange dynamic where there's good people in the south, according to them, good people in the north, but the people in the middle are a little bit sus. Now, maybe you can relate to this, but uh, maybe you can't. I, I'm not quite sure, but uh, this stays in the room. But the, the reference I give to first service might be useful to you. It's like if you're in San Diego, right? We're near the south, abutting the ocean. And in the north, some distance away, there's another good place to go and where there's good people. Let's call it, oh, I don't know, Orange County. All right? There's good stuff there. But in order to get from here to Orange County, you have to go through this place called Oceanside. Right? Oceanside. Now, Oceanside belongs to a different region that is not really San Diego. They call themselves North County. Yeah, somebody knows. North County. Like, North County. Like, we don't call ourselves South County because that's just kind of weird. But go South Bay. Um, but we're, in, we're just San Diego. But they're like, oh, no, I'm not from San Diego. I'm from... Yeah, I'm from North County. Mm-mm-mm. Yes. And so, and so there was this sort of like this, 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 this tension between those in the south, those in the north, and the people that live sort of in the middle. Now, obviously for us, this isn't just, but for them, this was of not just a cultural significance, but racial and ethnic significance. So those Jews that lived in the south, when they were trying to get to the north, they would just go up the five right through uh, Oceanside. No, they would go out to Escondido, then up north to Corona, yes, then cut across the 91 to get to Santa Ana, always trying to avoid Oceanside, because to them, going through would mean they would have to deal with the people that they detested. But why? Seems odd. Why? And why were they sandwiched in the middle? Well, I'm just going to give you the details. If you weren't with us, uh, we've been studying in the last couple of years the life of prophet Elisha as well as uh, Nehemiah. Y'all remember? Remember him? Yeah, remember him? Nehemiah, yes. So back when, when Israel was given the promised land, the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel were given the promised land, they were one people group. This was the promised land. They crossed over the River Jordan and this great valley. They owned all of it and lived in all of it. But over time, the people began to, the tribes began to fight amongst themselves. And we read during Elisha's time that they separated into two kingdoms. You remember this? Those who were with us in November, two kingdoms. The kingdom of the south, which is also called the kingdom of Judah. And the kingdom of the north, which is also called the kingdom of Israel. And they had their own kings. You can read this in the book of First and Second Kings. They had their own kings and sort of their own trajectories and their own prophets. In fact, we know, because we study this, that Elisha was a prophet of which kingdom? Okay, nobody was listening. That's, that's fine. That's fine. Okay. Elisha was the prophet of the northern kingdom. In fact, he lived just outside of the city of Samaria that we're just reading about right now. Samaria. So in the Old Testament, at first it's all one people. Then they split into two. South kingdom, Judah. Northern kingdom, Israel. But what I want you to understand is that in its origin, this was a place that God had given to his people. Samaria, what we're discussing right now, was part of the promised land. Everybody following me? Yes? Yes. Okay. Problem is, Elisha and Elijah and all the prophets kept saying, don't forget about God. Don't forget that God brought you out of Egypt. Don't forget that God is the giver of these great gifts. But the people kept forgetting. So eventually the Babylonians came 
Yeah, Babylonians came from the east, and they captured all of them and uprooted them from Samaria and Judea and Galilee, everywhere. And you know what, the, what they did? The Babylonians were really smart. Every time they would conquer, they would take the best and brightest. The, the, the smart people, that's what they did with, the, with, the, with, with all the Israelites. They took the best and brightest, but they wouldn't leave the place empty. They would instead bring other people to work the land so they could continue to draw from its resources. So what they did here in this section of Samaria is they took out all the Israelites, northern, southern, they took all the Israelites, and instead they put in a mix of people from different ethnicities that they had conquered along the way. And they left them to work the soil. If you'll read history, you'll discover, though, that as the, as the, uh, the Babylonians uh, and then later the Persians, uh, as they were trying to work this system, they found that the land wouldn't produce. They thought it was hexed. And they thought it's probably because the people that lived there had a good God that would bless them, and we need to appease that God. So they decided to send an Israelite-ish, literally what the Adventist commentary calls it, an Israelite-ish priest, somebody who knew a little bit about that God of Israel. And he sent that priest back to this region where no longer Israelites lived there, but mostly a mixed group of people, different ethnicities, Mostly from pagan cultures. Okay, I'm losing you, but hang in there. And this Israelite-ish priest comes back to the region, and he tries to teach them about Israel. But they're pagans. So what do they do? They make some kind of mixed form of religion. From that mixed form descends, over time, the Samaritans of the New Testament. You following me now? Yes? So what we have here between Judea and Galilee is a different ethnic group, partially Hebrew, but mostly pagan, and a philosophy of life that has some things of the Old Testament God mixed in with a bunch of other mythologies and other things. But to give them the sense of the ownership of the land, they always clung to what you're about to discover, a genealogy that goes even further back than those of the Jews. Okay, so as Jesus is making his way, Jesus goes straight through, but every other good Jew would take the long way around just to avoid these ethnically, racially, spiritually different people. You follow me now? Yes? No, not following me. Okay. He would do that. Now, now you and I, of course, would always take the straight route, right? Like this American's shortest path, right? We don't avoid people, right? Uh, ethnics, uh, you know, racial divides, we don't have that here. Americans is melting pot, they say. But... Then uh, the Jews would be careful to avoid, as you'll see. So Jesus makes this road straight through. That's why the author says he had to pass through Samaria. He got the straightest path. You can look it up on your maps. So he came to a town, verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son all the way back, pre-Israel, and he had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, which in your versions might say about noon, because they only measure daylight hours. So what we have is Jesus, who begins his travel probably early in the day, and about 20 miles in, 20 miles in on foot, takes him half the day, he gets to this middle place, and look it up on your apps, it's sort of in the middle between Judea and Galilee, and he stops at this, at this city that has a well on the outskirts of the city, uh, but um, he's tired because he's human, he's tired, he, was, he stops to take a break, and there... His disciples go into town, verse 7, and there comes a woman from Samaria to draw water. And Jesus says to her, 
give me a drink, verse 8, because the disciples had left him and had gone into the city to buy food. But the Samaritan woman, here's the familiar part that you know, Samaritan woman stops, is taken aback by his request, and she responds to him, and she says, wait a minute, how is it that you, a Jew, asks me for a drink because I'm a Samaritan woman? How is it that you, a Jew, asks me? And of course, you know this, you've probably studied this verse yourself, but I want you to see what's going on here. The woman clearly can identify him as a Jew, probably because they are ethnically different. Their features, possibly their skin, their dress, uh, the way they conduct themselves, Jews were always clearly identifiable. They wanted to make sure everyone knew they were Jewish and you were not. So clearly, that's, even Jesus would have been identified because he was, in fact, born in Nazareth to Jewish mom, right? Yes, everyone? Yes? Okay, all right, fantastic. And so the woman identifies him, but this is Samaria. In fact, just outside, a couple hours from the city of Samaria. And, and she says, wait a minute, why are you asking me? Now, it's about noon, which is not the usual time to draw water. You would go out to get water early in the morning to have water for the day or in the evening to have water for the night. You wouldn't go out in the middle of the day because people were busy conducting commerce, doing their life, doing what they're doing. But here she goes, quite possibly, as you'll see, because it's better to go when no one else will see you. And so she goes, and Jesus says, you should give me a drink. Can I please have a drink? And she says, how do you ask me for a drink? She says, because I am a Samaritan and you are a Jew. Verse, um, verse 9, look at it for me, if you will. Uh, in parentheses, the author has included this description. Because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, in your version, there might be a little footnote that explains it a little bit further, but I'm going I'm to um, make sure that I explain it to you. If you look at it in the original language, what's described there, uh, what's described there uh, is a word called sukrontai. And that word associate there, uh, yes, it means like have dealings with, but it also is used to describe when someone shares a plate. Like if you and I were going to eat from the same pot or the same dish, if we were going to share a utensil, that's the word that would be used to describe. And so the author is describing that Jews and Samaritans would never interact and would never dare share a plate. You following me? So Jesus says, can I get a drink? So she's like, wait a minute. How can I give you to drink from my cup when you people never associate with my people? And when your kind would never even share a plate with mine? You see why she's so startled? She's like, this doesn't make any sense. And so she right away identifies what we usually also identify, how people are different from us. Right? It's the first thing we notice, how people are different from us. What makes us us and them, them. She right away identifies that. But Jesus doesn't respond in kind. In fact, his answer is different. He says, Jesus, verse 10 says, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking you for a drink, then you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And I stop here in this phrase, the gift of God, because Jesus says, if only you knew what the gift of God was. And this is the word. It, it's called Dorean Tonteo, it, the gift of God. It, it's like a, like a proper noun. He says, if only you knew what this was. 
But you know what the word means? It means freely given, undeserved, right? Because what kind of gift is a gift that you receive because you have to get one or because you have to give one? That's not, that's not freely given. It's not undeserved. So Jesus says, if only you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking for your drink, you would have asked me for the gift of God that is freely given and undeserved. She's startled by this, by this question. She's not quite sure what to make of it. And so she says, sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Are you greater than our father Jacob? This is how we know. Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob? Now I'm telling you, these people were ethnically different. They were ethnically mixed, but they drew their genealogy from Jacob before Moses, which is what the, what the Jews claimed. Jews always claimed Moses, or even maybe Father Abraham. But the Samaritans went to Jacob. In fact, this was Jacob's well they're literally sitting at in the moment. And so she says, who are you? And do you think you're greater than my ancestor? But what is she really asking? Here's the question. Are you greater? Are you greater is the question. But what is she really asking? She says, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well, who dragged from himself and left it for his descendants? And Jesus hears what she is really asking because we discovered last week, Jesus knows the heart of men before you even utter the word. He knows, right? And Jesus answers her differently. He says to her, verse 13, follow with me. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. In fact, the water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water is just temporary. But I have a different kind of water. In fact, you, were, you heard the word living water, and you've heard that because you're a Christian, you've gone to church, and it just, you've heard it so much you don't even know, you can't even, it doesn't bother you. But what Jesus is saying, it's, it's uro, it's water, zoeing means it's alive. There's a water that is alive. And I'm not talking a water that's flowing, but he says, no, it's a water that has life qualities. It lives. It lives. It acts. It has life. He says, this water just satisfies your temporary thirst, but I have a water that is alive. In fact, if I give you that water, he says, that water will become a spring welling up. And what that word actually is, is aluminum, which means to leap out, something that jumps out. Uh, it's like when, uh, when the apostles would, would heal somebody from, from paralysis, someone who, who couldn't walk, they would say, get up, right? Get up and walk, and that person would leap out because suddenly what was dead has become alive. You following me? So when Jesus says, I have life, I have water that's alive, it's water that leaps out. When you and I think of living water, we're like, yeah, something calm and peaceful and sedate. But Jesus says, no, he's saying, this, I have something that disrupts what's going on in your life, something that brings it to life, and it springs out. Follow me so far? Yes? So I have something different to offer you. And, and at first he says, wait a minute, you don't have any pail? What are you talking about? Jesus says, I have a spring of water. So she says, okay, fine. Verse 16, uh, verse 15, he says, fine. Then give me that water so that I don't have to be thirsty and have to keep coming back here. I don't have to keep working to get this water. And Jesus then turns to her, you'll recognize this part. And he says, okay, go call your husband then. Go call your husband and come back and I'll give it to you. And then the woman's face dropped, and she said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, 
That's right. You don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. Now, here's the thing. The word there, exes, that Jesus uses, the, the, he says, you've had five husbands, and the one you now have, that word, the definition of that is to have and to hold in the hand. Does that sound familiar to you? It's the same expression you use at the altar, to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, to honor and respect and, and prosperity or adversity, keep yourself faithfully only unto him or her for as long as you both. That's where it comes from. That's that expression. This is where it comes from. So Jesus is saying, you've had five, and the one you have is not your husband, but you uh, have him in your hand. You're living as if. You have bound yourself to him even though he is not someone that you have pledged your life to. You following me? At this, what becomes evident to her is that the person she's talking to is no ordinary person, and he knows a lot more than he should know. So she answers, hmm, I can see that you are a prophet. I perceive her words. I perceive that you are a prophet. But feeling threatened, she says, our ancestors tell us that we should worship God here, Mount Gerizim. But you Jews, again, you Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem, which is? I found this fascinating. <laughs> Whenever things get personal, Adventists aim for theology, right? We just, whoa, let's talk about theology so we don't have to talk about ourselves. But Jesus knows all there is to know about you already. They're not hiding from him. So she says, whoa, you know what my life is about? Let's talk theology. What's the truth? Should we worship on Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem? I don't know. What is the truth? Everyone's mixed up. Our religions say, I don't know. And Jesus then responds with this fascinating phrase. Follow along with me. Jesus says to her, woman, verse 21, believe me, the hour is coming. In fact, it is now here that you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In fact, an hour is now come. The hour, verse 23, the hour is coming and it is here where the true worshipers will worship the Father not on Mount Gerizim, not on Jerusalem, but they will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Amen? I love this. I love this because, because Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, a time has come where the location no longer matters. Listen, at one point it did. We've studied Exodus together. At one point, God said, come to my mountain. I will descend. We, we discussed this for months in 2016. Come to my mountain. But by the time we encounter Jesus, he has now said, go out into all the world. Yes? So the location is no longer the limiting factor. Amen? Imagine if you and I had to travel all the way to Jerusalem before our worship could be validated. How many of us would get to do that? Imagine if we had to go to Mount Gerizim before we could consider ourselves true and faithful worshipers. How many of us could do that? Very few. But Jesus here opens the floodgates. You know why? Because Jesus' love is without limit. Without limit. So she says, which is the truth, this place or that place? And Jesus says, in spirit and in truth, the place doesn't matter. Jesus says, that tower is come. And then he says something troubling, at least at first meeting. He says, woman, 
The hour is coming, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, over time, people have read this, and you say, you see, salvation belongs only to the Jews. But that's not actually what Jesus is saying. In fact, the word salvation is from is this word. It's ek. And you know what that actually means? Because when people hear that, they think salvation is for the Jews. Just like Adventists have a tendency to believe that salvation is for Adventists. But that's not what it means. See, salvation is from the Jews means that it must come out of the Jews. You follow me? It's something that God has given that must come out of. It must come from you. It's the same charge that we were given when God gave us the message of the second advent of the Sabbath and of the health. It's not something for us. It's supposed to be something from us. You follow me, people? It's not meant to be something that we hoard. We say, we've got it, you don't, we've got it, we don't. It's something that's supposed to leap out. Living water, leap out and say, I live, I love, and because I live, I love, I will live in love for you, and it will come from me to you. I don't reserve it for myself. Jesus says this because, yes, the Samaritans worshiped some version, but they didn't understand. For them, it was now just habits, just like it was for the Jews. But the truth was in there. The truth about Jesus Christ was in there. And now here, Jesus is showing firsthand that he's not keeping salvation for the Jews. Why? Because he literally, physically in Samaria, talking to a Samaritan woman. In fact, a woman who has gotten around and currently living in sin. And even there, Jesus says, I have living water for you. You see? Jesus is like, I have living water. For, John will tell us, Jesus, we read this last week, did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. You can't save the world if you don't go out to the world. You can't save the world if you're not willing to bring salvation from you. It's not possible. So Jesus here is showing us firsthand that we're not just supposed to stay in Judea and go safely to Loma Linda and avoid the rest of the Inland Empire. We're not just supposed to go from, you know, PB Church to Broadway Spanish and just avoid everything else. That's not how it works. Jesus goes... And he takes the root that puts him in contact with people that don't yet know him. And he says, I have something to offer you. I have something to give you. How? To give you freely. I just read it to you. Freely. You know what this word um, actually means, this, this Dorian, freely? It's the same word that's used in the verse we are told in Matthew. Freely you have received, freely give. When Jesus says, heal and, and cleanse and cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. That's the gift. That's the Dorian. That's the gift. No one deserves it, not even you, not us. We're not Jewish. I've never been there. But I have freely received the gift of God. So my challenge is, will I share it? And the same is true, I think, for you. Jesus says the time is coming where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, a good Adventist will love that. You just say, amen. Come on, say amen. Amen, amen. spirit and truth, pastor. But what does that actually mean? Worshipper, uh, proskuneo is the word there. I'm just giving you a lot of Greek, okay? Proskuneo is the word worshiper, and this word is used over and over throughout the New Testament, this idea. But what is a worshiper? Actually, a worshiper is someone, listen to this, is someone who will um, uh, uh, kneel, kiss the hand, or pay homage to a being who is greater than they are. That's what worship means, to kneel and to kiss the hand and to pay homage to a, a being 
that is greater than you are, someone who has higher rank. And what we describe here as a worshiper is, is the same word, the same expression that's used in the book of Revelations. And uh, in, 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 you'll remember this verse. The 24 elders cast down their crowns and they fall down and they worship him who sits on the throne. There's that idea of casting down your crown. And you know what that means? That means that if you're a worshiper, you take the crown that signifies that you are in charge, that you are the king, that you are the decider in chief, and the crown is cast. And instead you kneel, kiss the hand, and pay homage to one who is greater than you and whose commands you will follow. So that's the question. If you believe you are worship, because the good evidence is a worship in spirit and in truth, is this true about you? Do you put down your crown and your ideas and your thoughts and let Jesus lead? Or do you just want what Nicodemus wanted, a little bit of magic dust over your choices? Totally different. Jesus says, the time is coming where the Father seeks worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. But what does that mean, Pastor? What does spirit and in truth mean? This is what a worshiper is, proskuneo. But, but you already know what truth is. We discussed it last week. Truth. Jesus says, this is how we come into the light, by being doers of truth. This is from John chapter 3. Truth is the principles of truth becoming more operative in your life. So, sorry, Adventists, truth is not an abstract it's not an idea that's a theory that you can come and conceptualize in your mind and say, okay, I agree with that, but it means nothing for my life. Truth actually means something that becomes operative in your life, changes your patterns of behavior. So when Jesus says spirit and in truth, he's saying those who believe God and therefore begin to act like God. See how troubling that is? Because it isn't just, oh yeah, I know the truth about the Sabbath. But now I'm going to do whatever I want after I leave church. Oh, yes, I know the truth about tithing, but I've decided I know better what to do with my money. Oh, yes, I know the truth about diet, but you know what? I'm young, so I can do whatever I want right now, someday later. That's not. Just knowing the truth informationally means nothing when it comes to worship. Nothing. They knew those truths. They did these behaviors that were ceremonial. And Jesus says, the time is coming where the Father seeks those who will worship in spirit and in truth. That means that your heart is positioned, but your actions follow the positioning of your heart. Jesus says, I am the truth, the way and the life, right? So he says, come and see, come and do it the way I do it. So here's my challenge as we're following Jesus. It's not a concept. It's not a theory. It's what I've been telling you from before. Uh, the Christian life is not theoretical. Jesus says, come and see. He wants us to have an experience. It's about spending the day, stepping into the light, into his righteousness, away from darkness, and I call it practicing Jesus. So what, what are we learning from this particular story about Jesus? So you may not like this, but I'm going to tell you. Number one, Jesus says, accept this offer. I have life to give you. Accept this offer. Here's the problem with uh, many of us. Even though we know we need God, we, want, we don't really want to accept his offer. It's freely given, but it can be rejected. And you know what he's actually offering? He's offering a new identity. A new identity. I mentioned to you last week that, you know, when I became, well, I, I didn't know I was becoming American, but I became an American, you know, when I was about 12. And I embraced a new identity. I learned a new language, learned to dress differently, nuances. I learned sarcasm. 
I didn't know that. Americans are good at that. Cynicism, I didn't know that either. I learned to behave and say and talk a different way because I was assuming a different identity. And just that's what Jesus is saying. And he wants you and invites you to operate now from grace. Look what he does to the woman. Listen. She is easily identifying the things that separate us. She says our gender separates us. Our ethnicity separates us. Our geography separates us. Our genealogy separates us. And Jesus still says, my grace is bigger than that. My grace is bigger than that. He does not engage with that, which gender is more, which geography is more, what ethnicity. He does not. He says, my grace, I'm here to give you living water. My living water is without limits. So operate from grace. Here's how you do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some challenges. You ready? This is proof, proof, proof is in the pudding. Number one, extend forgiveness. And here's what I mean by that. There's somebody that you know whose past is checkered, like this woman. And you are still using their past to judge them in the present. Someone in your life might be someone very close to you, your husband and your wife, adult child, a friend, brother, or sister, who's done something in the past, and you are still using that past to judge them in the present. The woman was married to five men before. Jesus knew all about it, but he says, I still have living water for you. I still have something to offer you. So I want you to challenge yourself to forgive other people's past, even if that past means they hurt you. Not only do you imprison them, you also imprison yourself. This woman could only come at noon because she was in prison. She was escaping the shaming looks of other people, but she lived in shame herself. And Jesus says, your circumstances don't define you. That's the second thing I'm going to challenge you. Do not define others by their circumstances. You know, we're so fortunate on this side. Just because you were born on this side, you've been given so many opportunities. I know, I'm from the other side. And when I crossed over, life is so different. I'm just telling you. They're none of my choosing or deserving. But just because someone's circumstances are different, it does not make them worth less. Don't define them by their circumstances. Just because someone's family is, is harsh and, and unforgiving and painful, doesn't mean they're worth less. Refuse to define people by their circumstances. Just because someone's a different ethnicity or a different gender does not make them less. Refuse to define people by their circumstances. Instead, choose to see them the way God sees them. Someone he loves and would do anything for. Just like you. So don't define yourself by your circumstances. Listen to me, listen to me. There's some of us right now in this room who all we can see is the bat around us. All we can see is the things that are wrong, aren't working out, the walls are closing in, and we want to believe that our value is tied to circumstances. But look at what Jesus does. He sees a woman who's failed marriages, hiding in shame, and, he's, and he takes that woman, and do you know what he does? He takes that woman, and with this act of love, he changes not her circumstances, but the course and the meaning of her life. She becomes, listen, the most successful evangelist in the entire region. Never mind Judea or Galilee, but Samaria, an entire town becomes converted, right in the middle of heathenism. Because Jesus says, I see you. And you matter. And your circumstances don't scare me. 
So I challenge you, just like Jesus, to invite others to share your journey. But how? Here it goes. Here's your challenge. Share a dish. The Jews and the Samaritans refused to share a dish. I'm not going to break bread with you. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to. But I'm challenging you. Find someone. Listen, listen, listen. We're closing. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and join me. You don't need to find them. You already know who they are. There's someone in your life right now. It might be the other person that sits at the other end of the table. Husband, your wife. Might be a coworker. Someone that you're just in conflict with. Someone that all you can see is how they are they, you are you, and it's us versus them. Might be a neighbor. Might be a church member. Somebody you just see on the other side. And Jesus says, let's, let's share a cup. Share a dish. Find a way to get past your prejudices, your fears, and share a meal. Invite somebody to a cup of coffee or to get a drink or just spend some time sharing a moment. Imagine what could happen if we began to share a dish with those the world wants us to fight against. Imagine if we could, that's just us, just us in this room. Imagine if we could make a concerted effort in just this one week to cross the boundaries that others say we cannot cross. To share a dish with our enemies at work. That co-worker that just keeps, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Imagine if I could share a dish with that uncle you just, you're, you've been offended by. Or with that brother that you had a fight with and just don't talk to anymore. Or that friend who stabbed you in the back, they told your secrets. What if we could just share a dish? A dish that says, I don't care about the past. Not even worried about the present. No matter what, God loves you. The same way he loves me, undeservedly. And because of that, we can share in this together. This is the way, friends. This is the way. Live a life where we practice Jesus without limit. This is the way.